poll drops. I don't spend too much time analysing those individual numbers. The Oz bubble. Having Aussies here would be fantastic. And the Labour lease fiasco. Taxpayers should be outraged. Kia ora and welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering here on One News. I'm Benedict Collins. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Jessica Much Mackay. Hey, big week this week. Lots of things going on. Do we have some... Um Peaks, some highlights and some lowlights? Yes, a peak for me was um, <laughs> changing the methodology and the way that we poll um, that reflects on my life choices Nerd. and life excitement. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting. We've been testing this out over the election and it's and it's exciting to be able to talk about it and to also test it out in real life and um, look at those numbers. So we've ditched the landlines and we've got, um, we're using 50% online and 50% mobile and it just means that um, we've tested it now to make sure it's accurate, which is really exciting, and it just means that um, going forward with polls, you can get a. It's easier to get a broad sample of people. So that's my pit, a yeah, peak for the week. It must have been getting harder and harder to find enough people who still have landlines. Like yeah, I although I heard on Hodaki the other day that they um, asked people to call up with landlines and be like, hey, anyone who's got a landline, give us a call on and it. And did they anyone did, ring? Yeah, they oh, got really? a few wow. calls in. So <laughs> Were they all over the age of 50? I would say almost exclusively. Yeah. And and also, I think lots of people ha- who do have landlines, it's surprising if they didn't have a mobile as well. So I just think that there's, um, it, it, we're just changing the way that we use landlines. I think, you know, my parents still have a landline, my um, grandparents still have landlines, but they also have mobiles that they use as well. And I think they're probably pretty typical of, of most people of that age. So, I mean, I, I don't have a landline, do you guys? No. No, and haven't had one in any of the places I've lived for, I don't know. Yeah, 10, 15 Last years. time I had one was as, as Europe correspondent, and that was so in case they couldn't raise you in the middle of the night on their mobile, they wanted a backup. So TVNZ actually paid for the landline so that they could <laughs> ring you in the middle of the night. And that sound um, haunted me yeah, because yeah, it literally yeah, yeah, would yeah. rouse you from your sleep. But we digress. Anyway, anyway, what were your... Look, the hits? only peak that I can think of um, for me actually is just that we did have a poll and it's the first poll of the year, um, which is always hugely exciting. So and, you're a geek um, too. Telling, I know. <laughs> I said that nerd thing, but I mean, we all relish in, in the same uh, uh, political uh, fever, if you like. So uh, no, no, um, this was a very uh, fun week for us yeah. and I'm um, looking forward to uh, chatting about the numbers soon. Yeah, so not so much a, a peak or a pit, but um, interesting development um, relating to the the story we broke back in February about Air New Zealand secretly working um, for the Saudi military. They've been basically repairing engines um, for the Saudi military that's linked to you know uh, war crimes in Yemen. Um, so. Uh, as soon as that sort of story came out, um, the Prime Minister and the government, they were pretty concerned because uh, in New Zealand had never told them about it. Um, they asked the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade to investigate why Air New Zealand didn't have export permits and whether they were needed and whether they should be prosecuted for not having them. Um, fact came back this week, so six weeks they investigated this, and they came back this week and decided that Air New Zealand did not need export, permit, um, export permits for this, so they're not going to be prosecuted. Uh, they decided... Uh, that's because the the engines uh, were not a component specifically designed for military use, um, e- even though they're clearly powering military ships. Uh, but now the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade is going to have a big review into its export control permit system to see whether it's um, re- really working as required. So it didn't pass the government sniff test, 
but it did pass um, MFAT's review. And it, yeah, it was pretty interesting um, at their annual review just a couple of weeks ago to hear Ben King, the deputy boss of MFAT, talk about the um, sort of talk about the great humanitarian work that he thought the the Saudi military was doing. Yeah, so so it shows where they're coming from, I think. So who issues the permits again? Sorry. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So if you're exporting um, goods to a military outside of New Zealand, you're supposed to get export control permits, right? From to, MFAT. Yeah. And, and and that's to make sure that who you're dealing with and what you're providing to them actually fits with the government's kind of view of the world and that you're not supporting tyrants or, you know, regimes committing atrocities. To it's stop this exact and, thing. And, and, and Air New yeah. Zealand had never gone, by the sounds of it, had never even gone to MFAT and asked whether it... You know, sort a permit or ask whether it needed to sort permit. So, you know, pretty incredible behaviour there from one of your biggest companies in New Zealand. They put out a statement as well and they said, look, we're still carrying out an internal review and an external review into how this ever happened in the first place. Um, and they're promising that from now on, any military contract that they sign will go through the board and they will take into account ethical considerations, which is kind of interesting that, you know, so MFAT issues. So MFAT issues yep. um, the permits yep. and MFAT carried out the review as to whether or not they needed to issue those permits. To, for these engines, correct. So it was an internal review. Well, MFAT With was With an outcome che- that was obviously beneficial to them and that it didn't find that they had done anything wrong. Well, in fact, carried out the review into Air New Zealand, yeah, into this, into these engines. Yeah. In fact, carried out the review as to whether or not in fact should have um, issued permits. Well, yeah, well, more so why whether Air New Zealand needed them because Air New Zealand had never applied. And it is interesting that your regulator here mm. had absolutely no idea that Air New Zealand was doing this. Yeah. You know, it does raise questions around whether they really yeah. have any oversight of what New Zealand companies are doing. It's also a shame in some ways that it came out on the Tuesday when it did because um, we were in America's Cup fever on that night and it may have got a bit more prominence um, in the news if it hadn't been for that. So it's good to be able to talk about it. And, you know, it's a story yeah. that we'll keep on and keep following. Yeah, so there's obviously a couple of reviews still flowing on into that. So yeah, really yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. To see where they land. Hmm. Um, a pit from me this week is um, Australia. Australia yet again making the news here in New Zealand over its deportees, and this time over a 15-year-old boy who was part of the um, deportee group uh, that was um, sent back here last week, uh, part of the group which um, Home Affairs Minister for Australia, Peter Dutton, called Trash. Um, And lots of questions around whether or not um, that um, uh, deportation, I don't actually know if you'd even call it a deportation, though, because the Minister Nanai Mahuta is saying that um, the 15-year-old, there are questions over whether it would be classified um, as a deportation or whether um, there were... It's obviously a complex matter. So, um, But the fact that they sent back a 15-year-old, the Children's Commissioner, Andrew Beacon, Croft is saying, look, he thinks that um, it breaches the um, con- the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Nanai Mahuta saying um, she hasn't received advice to that um, effect, but um, saying that it is a complex matter. And we've certainly seen that on the bridge um, and in media interviews here at Parliament with Nanai Mahuta. First of all, we had the Prime Minister up at Postcab uh, at the press conference on Monday saying, look, this was essentially the first time she'd heard of this 15-year-old being sent back. 
back. Then later in the week, we found out actually Nanaia Mahuta knew last week, and then there were questions around whether um, you know she informed the prime minister's office and why the prime minister didn't know on the mm. Monday. Um, and so it, it's very messy, a very very messy um, issue for the government to say the least. Um, and Nanaia Mahuta keeps referring all media questions back to the fact that it's a complex and a case, and that you know with this um, child being 15 years old, um, there's a lot of confidentiality around it. But but it doesn't put to bed a lot of the questions that you know the media have around you know what happened here and was it okay and did we know enough and what was Australia doing and did they give us enough heads up? All of that stuff. Um, it's really frustrating as the media because we can't get any info from the minister's office and from the minister herself and, and stand-ups um, over what it is because of confidentiality. So not very well handled, I'd say. And I think there's more to come on it. I think there'll be more developments with this and more questions and more pressure to come next week, for mm. sure. Um, mine, um, my pitch this week is, is personal. I had a, a cold earlier in the week and so I had a couple of days off and dutifully went and had my um, COVID test, which I actually still find a really interesting experience because we sit in press conferences and talk to people and ask questions about COVID all the time and it is... I still find it quite interesting seeing kind of the behind the scenes when, you know, you go along and um, the doctor was in full PPE and we were sitting out on the deck so that there's some open air and open space to have the COVID test um, and and had it and got the text back saying that it was negative. And it is, you know, we are lucky to live in a country like New Zealand where you do have this kind of process. I, that's my third test that I've had now. It doesn't get any less... Um, it's, it's invasive. Invasive, yeah. It's pretty unpleasant, but you just do it if you've got any cold symptoms. And I think, you know, if anyone knows the rules, it's yeah. us. We have to sit through the instructions and the rules all the time. But yeah. So, so Jess has had three tests. Benedict, how many have you had? One. Uno, yeah. I have had one. I had my first one two weeks ago. God, it was gnarly. Yeah. You just have to kind of... <laughs> someone said one time in a Voxy that it feels as though it's going too far and it's hitting into your brain. And that, to me, I was like, yeah, that's exactly and right. And then they, they put it up there and then they're like, OK, going to count to 10. And I'm thinking, 10 seconds. 10? <laughs> 10. 10 seconds. Oh, I didn't have to and do then, that. And then, and then she says, and we're going to turn it clockwise. And <gasps> so she turns it and... and Back again, turns it back, and then you're. Oh my no, god! No, that's uh, my. That was. You didn't have that. Torturous. <laughs> no. It was torturous. <laughs> I was like, geez, Ashley Blue. And you said something wrong to offend her or something. Yeah. This is like a payment back for, for when, Lucky Sherman. But also, so many people that you watch on TV, they, mm. they like, they just sit there and they they do it, and they don't. <laughs> like, I was. When I had mine done, I'm kind of like squirming and trying to get away from the. Oh no! See, I wasn't. Car. I just, oh, yeah, I cool. was, I was pretty staunch. Right. And yeah. my, my peak for the week is that Jess's test came back negative, so we're not having to do this podcast from the jet park. Yeah. Um, hotel, which is great. <laughs> just think of all the people I would have taken down with me. It's, yeah. You just shudder to think, don't you? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> poll. Yes. Let's, let's, let's go through the change. results. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, it seems appropriate considering what we were just talking about. Um, it was negative, though, for everyone, just so that everyone's clear. Right, poll numbers this week. So, really interesting stuff. We had to delay the poll a couple of times because of the lockdowns. We don't feel like it's fair um, talking to people when we're in the middle of a lockdown. It's not fair for the other parties. It's not fair for the government. They get a lot more airtime, etc. cetera. So um, we've ended up doing it in March. We usually would do it in, in February. Um, but I think it's really important to 
look at the numbers and compare it. This is the second one we've done since the election. and yep. um, We did another one in December. And we saw some really interesting uh, drops in the preferred prime minister numbers. Now, some of that may be because of that change in methodology, me- methodology that I talked about earlier, but not all of it. So you can't, um, we, we dug into the numbers and you can't say, oh, look, this is um, just because of the, the change in the way that we've asked people. So the prime minister's taken a 15-point drop and um, Judith Collins is down to eight. So those were the, I, I think those are the most interesting numbers uh, in all of that. What was Judith down by? Four. Right. So she went from 12 to eight. And I, to me, I wasn't hugely surprised by that. The government's had a bit of a messy um, few lockdowns in Auckland. Lots of people are questioning why we needed to go into lockdown and the coming out of lockdown was messy as well. There were issues with communication. So I think that explains... Um, the Prime Minister's shine being rubbed off a bit with those numbers. Um, with Judith Collins, she just hasn't really been around. And so I'm not surprised that she's sitting on eight either. What did you guys make of them? What were your big things? I, for me, it was the party numbers that I thought we had Labour on. Um, so 49, 49, down four. And National up a couple, up onto 27. I mean, they're heading in the... Right direction slowly. I mean, you know, that they need to get back up into the in, into the thirties and start closing that gap, obviously. But I felt, yeah, things are pretty steady. I thought for the for the for the main political parties. I, I think people are showing, you know, that, that they're pretty comfortable with the way the election went. Those numbers are sitting, still sitting, you know, relatively around where they were on election night. I don't think, you know, people are really questioning their decisions too much. I think it was a good poll for um, National, not so much Judith Collins herself. And the reason why I say that is just that, obviously, you know, Labour on 49%, yes, that is absolutely huge. They had a great election, though, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm expecting the numbers to be around that. But a four-point drop is perhaps the start of that sort of shine and that halo starting to come off a bit, and that's good for for National. Also, with National going up two points um, while, while Labour's dropping four points, you know, it, it may be small, but incremental steps um, up into those 30s is what they need, and that's what they saw. So it's good for them, um, especially so close to that big election result for Labour. Um, in terms of Judith Collins, though, I think a four-point drop is big for her. 15 for the Prime Minister is huge, um, but also she's still on big numbers. But for Judith Collins, you know, she's she's on the sort of the knife edge, you know. She's not up in the, you know, what is it with uh, Ardern? She's got such big numbers. 43. 43. You know, Judith Collins now sitting on eight. A four-point drop is huge for her from 12. And, you know, this comes off the back of things like Waitangi um, and that big kerfuffle around women's speaking rights on the Marae, um, and whether or not you know her messaging is getting a cut through that it needs, perhaps not, obviously not. Um, so I think that it is good for the party, not so good for Judith Collins. Um, she does need to turn her numbers around. I think it was good from the caucus perspective that, you know, obviously after the poll came out on the Monday, on the Tuesday at caucus, they were all very much on the same message in terms of we support Judith Collins, we support the leader. Um, you know, it's not surprising, but it's good just to see that they've still got her back like that. But that won't last forever. She needs to turn her numbers around. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. I, I agree with you in some ways, but... I also think for National, we're still talking about a party in the 20s. And isn't it interesting that we're like, oh, it's going in the, it's going up and that's good. But they're still below 30, which I feel like historically is such a benchmark of a party 
doing well. The other thing that I thought on the Tuesday um, when you guys were talking to all of the MPs is just how united they were and how... I think that message has come through for them saying we need to, we can't keep going on this death spiral of changing leaders all the time. We've got to stick with her. Um, and what I'm hearing behind the scenes is she's got till the end of the year to, to bring those those numbers up. I'd be surprised if she had till the end of the year. I mean, definitely till like maybe July, August. But I think I think if, you know, so with the party going, the party is united and the party vote, uh, you know, in our polls is, is slowly going up. If she keeps coming down or if she's not going up, I think that, you know, that unity will quickly turn into confidence and that confidence will turn into an ability to start thinking, hey, is she the one for us or do we need to start moving? And you've got the likes of Christopher Luxon who, you know, we ask him, you know, what do you make of this 2%? And actually looking at those numbers also, prior to the election, he wasn't really registering anymore. Um, so in the two polls prior to the election, he was on 0.1 and 0.2. After that dismal election night result, which, you know, obviously the leadership has to cop a lot of responsibility for that, in our last two polls since the election, he's been on 2% consistently. So if he's, you know, still showing that strong showing, um, then, then you know, and the party numbers are going up. Judith Collins isn't doing much movement herself in the preferred prime minister polls. I'd be nervous, and I wouldn't be sort of um, thinking that she's too safe until the end of the year. But the thing is, is if you are talking about Luxon, he needs the longer they can give him, the better. Like it just, it's way too early this year for him to be in the mix. So then you'd have to be thinking of other people. I also think that with Labour, they show that with Jacinda Ardern, they changed six weeks before the election, and she turned the polls around. So I feel like traditionally you wanted to give 18 months for a leader to embed in and get going. I just think that the goalposts have changed now for. For, not, for switching a leader out late and it's still working for people. But I also think that Christopher Luxon, I think that he would be a good... I I think that he, he probably does have the skills and what it takes to, to be a good leader, um, or, you know, to carry that role. Absolutely. Um, but you just need to learn the ins and outs of Parliament. You know what I mean? It's kind of like you have to learn what being on a select committee. You have to learn um, how to ask questions in the House. You have to learn how to draft legislation. All of that, those mechanics, I think you need time to learn. And, and you need to show that... <clears throat> You know that you can hold ministers in your portfolios <clears throat> to account, you know, um, and have some wins there. I think as well, you know, show that you can perform well as an opposition MP. Yeah, but I, do, I think you're right. There's no doubt that he's a future leader. And I remember when um, Simon Bridges came in in 2008, when he won against Winston Peters, everyone touted him as a future leader as well. I think people say, oh, you know, you don't want to be talked about as a leader. And, and in some ways, yes, it's a poison chalice, but on the other side, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy as well because you are seen as leadership material. Simon Bridges was right from the beginning and and worked his way up. So I do think that, I mean, you know, he's he's running New Zealand. It's not a, you're abs, you know, it's not a shock that he could um, do the job. Yeah, what did mm. you make of some of the other... <clears throat> Party's performances in the poll. Um, ACT and the Greens will be really happy. They're holding strong, and they traditionally drop away when it's not an election year. So they'll be really happy. Yeah. Um, David Seymour um, sitting on four for the preferred prime minister numbers. Um, he'll be yeah, just four behind Judith Collins. Yeah, yeah, David Seymour for prime minister. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the Greens were pretty. Um, 
stoked with their with their performance. I did think yeah. there was something quite interesting in Parliament yesterday that happened during question time, though, with the Greens, and that was Nicola Willis, um, Nationals housing spokesperson, was asking um, Marama Davidson a question, and at the end of the question, uh, and it got pretty fiery, and there were claims of class, classism or racism during the questions, but <coughs> at the end, Nicola Willis asked a question. She said, is it true that you haven't issued a single press release or taken a single cabinet to paper since you've been had this ministerial portfolio. And um, Marama said, yeah, that basically said, yeah, that's that's true. I haven't um, done either of those yet. And I, th- I think that's interesting, right? For yeah. for someone with a ministerial portfolio, it raises questions around, you know, whether she's actually able to achieve anything. Yeah. Um, or, or what's going on oh, with, really with her portfolio. Yeah. She also, though, um, Debbie Ngariwa Pekka in, in that question time asked um, about the, um, what is it, the Homeless Action Plan, and um, and uh, Marama said that they've, um, the government's committed to implementing all 18 recommendations of that Homeless Action Plan that um, they've undertaken. That's part of her portfolio. So <coughs> I, I don't know if I'd necessarily sort of um, question as to whether or not she's doing nothing. I also think that she um, was really strong in her response to that question by Nicola Willis um, and um, defending uh, her criticisms around racist and classist undertones. With the, um, with, with the social housing, In right? terms of social and, housing. And City, I think, yeah, safe yeah. So I yeah. think actually that Marama Davidson did a very, had a very strong performance um, on that um, question time. Uh, but that's just me. Shall we talk about the um, supplementary question about housing? And um, it almost rivaled my pitch, uh, my, my peaks of the week, Mikey's questions asking MPs how many houses they owned. <laughs> yeah. um, that gave me great joy um, seeing that. But do you want to talk us through that briefly and we'll touch on that before we move on? Yeah, so one of our supplementary questions in the poll was asking um, the public, uh, do you think the government's done enough to make housing more affordable? Um, and a whopping 70% of people said no. I mean, no big surprises there, but still um, a sort of damning report card, if you like, for the government. They won't be happy with that. And I think even just, you know, we um, do voxies, which is just, you know, going out and talking to members of the public on the street about their thoughts. And they were all, you know, in unison um, in terms of, you know, every everything being too um, expensive in terms of housing, not only in Wellington, but Auckland, um, all around the country. And just um, the repeat of the chorus saying, look, the government's not doing enough. And that's damaging for the government. Yeah, I just think it was interesting. And I think a lot of MPs here have um, more than one house. Yeah, that was fun. So rocking around just sort of asking all the different MPs, um, which is always good at caucus (laughs) because that's when you get the biggest sort of hit rate because all of the MPs from Labour and National are walking the corridor so you can basically just jump from one MP to the other and just saying like, how many houses do you own? A lot of them were saying one, one, one. And then you had Willie Jackson. Um, I said, how many houses do you own? And he said, oh, that's a big question, Mikey. And then honestly, you could hear the crickets for quite some time. And then I says to him, geez, you must own quite a few. You're taking a while to answer. And he says, yeah, yeah, well, I own a few. And I said, great, how many? And he's like, oh, oh, a few, a few. And I said, five, four? No, not five, four. Three? Yes, three, three. And I just, you got to laugh, eh? Because, man, just come out and say it straight away. Otherwise, it makes for great television. Yeah. Um, and then Jerry Brownlee, I asked him, how many houses do you own? And he said three. And then later on, he texted me saying, oh, um, Jingo, sorry, I thought you meant how many houses do I rent out? I actually have six. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, always fun. Yeah, it is good fun. And 
talking of fun in the future, hopefully we will be able to do that with Australia, with the Oz bubble coming yeah. up. Do you want to fill us in on that? Yeah, so it looks like the government is now going to have our end of the bubble. Australia's got its own one. We can go over there without quarantining. Now the New Zealand government should have ours in place, and it looks like at some stage in April we're supposed to get a lot more information, I think, after post-cab on Monday where they'll make the decision. But definitely, yeah, it looks like we're going to have our own bubble up and running, um, and you know, two-way travel will be quarantine-free. So yeah, that um, looks to be coming next month. Yeah, which is major and huge for lots of industries, and um, lots of people have family over there, which yeah. I think is a really big one. I've seen these um, ads on TV about the Gold Coast saying, you know, hi to my cousin and hi to my nana and all of those kinds of things. And you forget there's so many people mm. with family living overseas, and this will be a really big and, deal. And we were out... Um, doing more voxies with the public yesterday and yeah, there was one lady um, who was saying, oh, I, I missed the wedding um, earlier this year because I couldn't couldn't get over there, but I don't want to miss the arrival of the baby. Yeah. Um, she, you know, just really hoping that she can get over to to Aussie to be with, with be with family for the there are, arrival of a granddaughter, I think. Yeah, yeah and there grandson. are there are so many benefits to the bubble. And when you see Australia, you know, happily sort of opening itself up to New Zealand, you do wonder why we are taking so long. Um, but I was interested in a lot of the um, voxies um, who were saying, no, no, um, we don't want to risk it. I, I I was surprised to see quite so many um, being a bit more sort of um, cautious about uh, a bubble. I can understand that feeling. Like mm. I think that. We have, we are so um, isolated and insular, and, and allowing people in does make people feel a bit nervous. Yeah, but I think it's especially I think when you know that your big vaccination programs just four or five months away yeah. from you know coming out and rolling out through the public and getting you know up towards that herd immunity hopefully yeah. pretty quickly, and then you think, oh hey, well, we're opening this bubble after all this time of not being able to go mm. or travel easily back and forth to Australia. Now you're doing it. A couple of months before the yeah. vaccine program, yeah, and yeah. that's why I think it's mm. a really um, it's a it's a balancing issue for the government. Um, so they really need to get it right because on the one hand you've got all of these p- yeah. people and businesses saying let's go, let's go, but then you still do have those who are saying, hang on, I'm not too sure about this. Ugh. Yeah, but but I did speak to a um, public health expert yesterday from um, Otago Uni, and he um, he was saying, look, this is incredibly low risk, and he th- felt that this government, our government's been so slow to get this bubble up and running. He thought they're just trying to micromanage every little um, every little aspect. He said, yeah, it's incredibly low risk. And he felt, you know, open the bubble. But And then uh, when it comes to managed isolation, he feels that it's really, really high risk. Um, the way that we've got people coming in from countries where COVID is just rampant, coming into these MIQ facilities in the middle of Auckland, um, you know, and mingling with people from relatively safe countries as well. Yeah. So that was... Um, so, yeah... A month away, by the sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and um, another story we looked into, um, well, last Friday did the story, and credit where credit's due, um, Thomas Coughlin, a reporter for Stuff, he broke the story sort of just around the election last year, and it was to do with what's happening in Hutt South with the Labour Petoni office. So basically they sold their building a long time ago to a, <clears throat> the New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union, I think it's called. And as part of that deal, they were guaranteed cheap rent, $1,500 a year, okay, in, in the middle of Petoni for this office where a normal commercial lease would be going for eighteen dollars to $20,000. Now, 
in, in parliamentary services, if you've got an, a, an electorate office anywhere around the country, they pay your rent, right? So you just come to them and say, this is how much my rent is, right? But what the Labor Party was doing and what Thomas Coughlin revealed last year was that they're subleasing. So they're, they're setting up the Labor Party in the middle. So the Labor Party's getting charged $1,500 by the Firefighters Union. And then the MP, who was, was Trevor Mallard and then Ginny Anderson, as she took over from him, they've been charging taxpayers $6,000, right? <clears throat> so f- charging four times more for the rent and pocketing that $4,500 um, year after year. Now, for the Labor Party. <laughs> for the Labor Party, right? And into and, and their own little Labor Party electorate, though, right? So then that money is then available for them to run their, their campaigns with, right, and outspend other political candidates. And now we spoke to Jenny Anderson and she told us, and we sort of managed to reveal this on Friday, that basically as soon as the public found out, she shut down this arrangement and she cut the Labour Party out of it. And now parliamentary services just deal directly with the um, professional firefighters union, right? So she's cut the Labour Party out, but, you know, did so after the public found out. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so Chris Bishop was um, is pretty fired up about this. He thinks, um, you know, they're... Um, they're taking taxpayer money for no good reason, and it you know creates an uneven um, playing field out in the hut. Um, we put questions to the prime minister about this, you know, about whether her um, MPs were ripping off taxpayers here, um, taking this money for no no good reason from taxpayers, and she said, you know, it's not up to her to judge whether or not what her MPs are doing is ethical here, which was um, you know a pretty fascinating answer from the um, the leader of the Labour Party. Not really too interested in, in, in whether this is ethical. She says, hey, parliamentary services has looked into this and they're comfortable. And the flip side of that answer is, of course, parliamentary services told us that their only concern is that they're paying less than the market rent, right? Mm. Market rate, they're like, hey, this is a great deal for taxpayers. We could be paying 20K, you know, if it was a commercial rent. Instead, we're paying six. We don't care. Because a couple of points um, points said this came about when uh, the building was sold, and then they set up an arrangement um, that they that from the, with the firefighters union that it would be done cheaply. So I think um, that historical context is there. It doesn't take away from the fact, though, that even you know people might say, look, four and a half thousand dollars isn't a huge amount of money. It doesn't make it right. It's wrong, and and the fact that you can charge one thing and then only be paying this much, it just again we've use that phrase before the sniff test, it just fails that. Absolutely shameful. And I just think that, and we've looked at examples of that where four and a half thousand dollars for people is a big deal. It's a huge amount of money yeah. and um, you and know, for years and years and years. And it's not about the, the fact that it's below market rate. I'll tell you what taxpayers want. They just want to pay fifteen hundred dollars, the amount that the mm. Labour Party is paying for that rent. And then they don't want to be paying for Labour to pocket the rest of that cash. And it's absolutely shameful. Good on Ginny uh, Anderson for saying, yep, actually um, this doesn't pass the sniff test. Let's sort that out. Um, you know, backing Chris Bishop for raising that good, good one, and actually the prime minister, no good. That is not good leadership from the prime minister and the leader of the Labour Party, um, saying that she's not the one to judge that. She absolutely is. She should, you know, have higher standards than that. And the fact that she couldn't come out and simply back Ginny Anderson, her own MP, who'd called it, you know, what it was, which was not good enough. Why couldn't <laughs> yeah. Jacinda Ardern just say that? This is like so shameful, and I can't believe um, that they would try to, to paint it any other way. Yeah, no, Trevor, we, uh, we tried to seek interviews with Trevor Mellar this week to find out how long this deal was running, whether whether he came up with this deal or whether he inherited it. We're not sure. He, you know, he's refusing to be interviewed or answer answer our questions around this deal. But I'll, I'll tell you something that's interesting. So this week, 
there's a, a Filipino family in Queenstown and got up to no good during the lockdown. That basically, he his work. Uh, my understanding from reading the court case, he he lost a lot of work, couldn't afford to feed his family, so he wrongfully accessed sixteen hundred dollars worth of food vouchers um, in, in Queenstown. He used some fake addresses in order to get f- uh, food vouchers so he could provide food for his family because they were they didn't have any food, right? And he bent the rules and he got prosecuted and he apologised. He said in court, he said, you know, he'd done something really really wrong here. Their family is getting deported from New Zealand for accessing $1,600 worth of food vouchers, right? Getting kicked out of the country back to the Philippines. 1600 bucks, And here you've got two Labour MPs taking $4,500, three times that amount, year after year after year. You know, totally different set of rules for MPs. And the fact that Trevor Mallard won't front for an interview, where's the transparency in that? You know, this is supposed well, it's to be just issue after issue gov- after government. issue that Trevor Mallard refuses to be interviewed on, right? Exactly. You know, the fa- false rape accusations, just uh, everything. Yeah. Well, that's a nice place to leave it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Right. So, there we go. <laughs> bit, of, bit of fire in the belly at the end. Right. So, this was One Friday. News Inside Parliament, Woo! our weekly catch up about the political stories we've been covering here on New- One News. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's available most weeks on One News Online. You can check us out on your favourite podcasting app. 